go to God in his word and before we worship him through giving, uh, let's first go to him in prayer. Our great God and King, this morning we come to you as a people who feel the burden of our sin and who feel the brokenness of our world. Father, even as we've come in this morning, we've brought baggage with us, things that are weighing on us, things that we know are waiting for us as we leave. And so, Father, I pray that this place would be a sanctuary, not not just a place and escape from those realities that are outside the door, but an escape into Christ, an escape into him who calls us to himself and calls us to give him our burdens and our sorrows, who takes those things from us and bears them away, who calls us to service under his yoke, which is light. And Father, we come to you this morning in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ who gave his own life for us so that we might be redeemed from sin so that we might have life in his light in his life and, and light in his light. Father, we thank you for the way that you have worked out the history of the world to exalt Jesus as king over all. And I pray, Father, as we come to your word that you would open our eyes to the truth, that your spirit would would be at work to take uh, what is preached, to apply it to our lives, to change us and to shape us and to fashion us after the likeness of Christ. Father, we pray that you would remove all other saviors from our eyes, all other loves from our heart, that they would be centered directly on Christ, and that as such that the light of his life would shine forth from us, that the world would see and know that Jesus truly is the Son of God. And that by knowing that, we pray that many would come to know and believe that for themselves. That they would have this life as well. Father, I pray that you would found us on this strong foundation of Christ. A foundation which is able to enable us to, to weather any storm. Because we know that you hold us in your hands and that you love us. And I pray, Father, that as we see your word, that that love would, um, would, would shape and mold us and that it would penetrate uh, even the darkest doubts we have. Father, as we come to you and we pray, and we pray for the gospel to go out from us, we also thank you for the ones that you have called from us to go into the different places in the world to carry this message of truth, this message of life, into the dark places. And so, Father, we thank you for Tom and Anna Johnson. We thank you for their ministry there in Cambodia, for the, for the way you've been able to use Tom, and, uh, both as a doctor and as a pastor and church planner and teacher. And, Father, we want to pray for their work there. We pray that you would keep and sustain them. Uh, Father, we thank you that they have such a track record of many years of faithful service. We pray, Father, that they would continue on in that, that they would persevere by the, by the mercy of your Spirit, and that as such, that the gospel would continue to grow and, and flourish there in Cambodia, that many more would come to know Christ as their Savior, and that the churches that are there would grow in, in health and maturity, in unity, and in love. Father, even as we pray for the church abroad, we want to pray for the church locally. And Father, we have such a deep burden for our community, and, and we thank you that we're not the only church you've called to, to reach our community with the truth. Father, this morning we want to pray for our brothers and sisters at Sheboygan Evangelical Free Church and their pastor, Gary Highlander. Father, I pray that you would uh, work in and through them, that they would hold fast to the, the truth of the gospel, that they would value above all things the glory of Christ, that as the gospel is preached, that it would bear fruit. And we pray, Father, that our community would be changed as your people testify to the glory of Christ. Father, even now as, as we consider how you call us in your word to pray for those who are in authority over us, Father, this morning we want to pray for the governing bodies of, of the state of Wisconsin, the legislative bodies in particular. Father, we pray for the many representatives that have been elected to the positions of serving uh, their communities in this way. We pray, Father, for, um, we pray, we pray Father, that, tri- that righteousness and truth would triumph in our state. And we pray, Father, that that your word would have victory 
uh, and that those who have been called to serve uh, in these, these roles of representing the will of the people they've been elected to represent, I pray, Father, that they would, um, that they would uphold what is right and good, that they would oppose what is evil, uh, and that through their leadership that um, the state would flourish. More than that, Father, we want to pray for our state just that the gospel would, would bear great fruit here, that people would be released from uh, the different things that enslave them, uh, that they would be released from their addictions and they would actually live in the light of Christ. And now, Father, as we, as we come to worship you through giving, I pray that what is given would be pleasing in your sight. Father, we know that you're, you do not need anything from us, but you do call us to give and you have equipped us to give. And I pray, Father, that what is given will be taken, that it will be used, uh, and that you would use it powerfully in your kingdom. I pray, Father, that we would give with cheerful hearts because we know that you're not interested in just works as a service, but you care about the heart which does all these things. So I pray, Father, that we'd give cheerfully. And I pray that your spirit would be at work even as we give of our time and our money and um, and and. I pray, Father, that you would use this to your glory. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, if you will, please take your Bibles and turn with me to the book of Acts, chapter 7. Acts, chapter 7. And you can find that on page 914 if you're using one of the Red Pew Bibles. So, Acts, chapter 7. This morning, we're actually going to be looking at a, a pretty long text. We're we'll looking at verses, and we're starting at verse 1, and actually, we're going to be reading through verse 53. So, covering a lot of ground. Um, yeah, I just saw. Yeah, I saw. <laughs> I saw Sharon's face there. <clears throat> Not to worry. Now Jesus told a parable once about a man who had planted a vineyard. The land was his. The vines were his. The walls that protected it were his. And he says that after planting this vineyard, this man lent it out to some tenants. And having entrusted them with this vineyard, he himself went to another country for a long while. But when the time came, he sent a servant back to the tenants so that they would give him some of the fruit of the vineyard. But it seems that the tenants had other ideas. They took this servant and beat him and sent him away empty-handed. So the man, the owner of the vineyard, sent another servant. But the tenants also beat him and they treated him shamefully, sending him away empty-handed. So the owner of the vineyard sent yet another servant. This one, they assaulted, they wounded him, and they cast him out empty-handed. What shall I do? The owner asked himself. I know. I will send my beloved son. Perhaps they will respect him. But Jesus tells us that when the tenants saw the master's son coming, they did not respect him. In fact, they conspired against him, saying to themselves, This is the heir. Let us kill him so that the inheritance may be ours. And that is exactly what they did. They threw the beloved son out of the vineyard and they killed him. Now, if you were the owner of that vineyard, if you were to put yourself in this man's sandals, what would you do? 
It's not as if this owner had asked for anything that wasn't his. Even then, he had dealt graciously and patiently with these wicked people. He had even sent them his own son, his beloved son to them. But these wicked tenants would not have it. So what would you have done if you were in this man's shoes? Well, Jesus tells us. He says, He will come and he will destroy those tenants and give the vineyard to others. Now if you ask me, that's justice. Anyone who thought that they could seize the inheritance of another person's son by killing them is a fool. But the people who heard Jesus say this parable to them had a different response. They perceived that Jesus had told them this story and that it was really about them, or more particularly, it was about their leaders and about the Jewish nation. They were familiar with the language of prophets like Isaiah who had spoken similarly, talking about Israel as God's vineyard and making certain assumptions about their own spiritual standing. When they heard this parable, they gasped. And they said to Jesus, Surely not! Surely God would never take this vineyard and give it to others. What about all his covenant promises? But Luke tells us that Jesus looked directly at these people in their shock and said, What then is this that is written? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. Everyone who falls on that stone will be broken to pieces. And when it falls on anyone, it will crush him. As the owner of the vineyard took the treatment of his servants and the treatment of his beloved son seriously, so God takes the treatment of his servants and the treatment of his beloved son seriously. Though God is merciful and long-suffering, full of steadfast love and understanding, He is also just. As David warns, Now therefore, O kings, be wise. Be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the Son, lest he be angry and you perish in the way, for his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. As we look at Acts chapter 7 this morning, it's as if this parable of the vineyard is taking shape before our eyes. In this passage, Stephen gives a defense before the Jewish council for what he was teaching and preaching. Here we see that Stephen, the servant, defending not only the good news of Jesus, God's beloved son, but also speaking an indictment, bringing charges, if you will, against these traitorous tenants who had betrayed Jesus into the hands of the Romans and killed him. In this sermon, Stephen shines a light into the dark tombs that were these men's hearts, revealing the deadness therein, chasing away any confidence anyone might take of being accepted in God's sight apart from the redemption that is received by faith in Jesus. This this is not a comfortable sermon to read. But it is an important one. In the final moments of his life, Stephen spends his breath taking us on a tour through the storyline of salvation to confront us ultimately with the reality of our sin and then to usher us before the foot of the cross of Christ where we find peace and rest and forgiveness. So with that, let's read our text together. Now, normally I ask you to stand with me for the reading of God's Word. I'm reading 54 verses, so we're just going to have you stay uh, seated. But if you will, direct your attention uh, to your Bible so you can read and follow along with me. This is the Word of the Lord. The high priest said, Are these things so? And Stephen said, Brothers and fathers, hear me. The God of glory appeared to our father Abraham when he was in Mesopotamia before he lived in Haran and said to him, Go out from your land and from your kindred and go into the land that I will show you. Then he went out from the land of the Chaldeans and lived in Haran. 
And after his father died, God removed him from there into this land in which you are now living. Yet he gave him no inheritance in it, not even a foot's length, but promised to give it to him as a possession and to his offspring after him, though he had no child. And God spoke to this effect, that his offspring would be sojourners in a land belonging to others who would enslave them and afflict them four hundred years. But I will judge the nation that they serve, said God, and after that they shall come out and worship me in this place. And he gave him the covenant of circumcision. And so Abraham became the father of Isaac, and circumcised him on the eighth day. And Isaac became the father of Jacob, and Jacob of the twelve patriarchs. And the patriarchs, jealous of Joseph, sold him into Egypt. But God was with him, and rescued him out of all his afflictions, and gave him favor and wisdom before Pharaoh, king of Egypt, who made him ruler over Egypt and over all his household. Now there came a famine throughout all Egypt and Canaan, and great affliction, and our fathers could find no food. But when Jacob heard there was grain in Egypt, he sent sent out our fathers on their first visit. And on the second visit, Joseph made himself known to his brothers, and Joseph's family became known to Pharaoh. And Joseph sent and summoned Jacob his father and all his kindred, seventy-five persons in all. And Jacob went down into Egypt, and he died, he and our fathers. And they were carried back to Shechem, and laid in the tomb that Abraham had bought for a sum of silver from the sons of Hamor in Shechem. But as the time of the promise drew near, which God had granted to Abraham, the people increased and multiplied in Egypt, until there arose over Egypt another king who did not know Joseph. He dealt shrewdly with our race and forced our fathers to expose their infants so that they would not be kept alive. At this time, Moses was born, and he was beautiful in God's sight, and he was brought up for three months in his father's house. And when he was exposed, Pharaoh's daughter adopted him and brought him up as her own son. And Moses was instructed in all the wisdom of the Egyptians, and he was mighty in his words and deeds." When he was forty years old, it came into his heart to visit his brothers, the children of Israel. And seeing one of them being wrong, he defended the oppressed man and avenged him by striking down the Egyptian. He supposed that his brothers would understand that God was giving them salvation by his hand, but they did not understand. And on the following day, he appeared to them as they were quarreling and tried tried to reconcile them, saying, Men, you are brothers. Why do you wrong each other so? But the man who was wronging his neighbor thrust him aside, saying, Who made you a ruler and judge over us? Do you want to kill me as you killed the Egyptian yesterday? At this retort, Moses fled and became an exile in the land of Midian, where he became the father of two sons. And when forty years had passed, an angel appeared to him in the wilderness of Mount Sinai, in a flame of fire in a bush. When Moses saw it, he was amazed at the sight. And as he drew near to look, there came the voice of the Lord. I am the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham and of Isaac and of Jacob. And Moses trembled and did not dare to look. Then the Lord said to him, Take off the sandals from your feet, for the place where you are standing is holy ground. I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt, and I have heard their groaning, and I have come down to deliver them. And now, come, I will send you to Egypt. This Moses, whom they rejected, saying, Who made you a ruler and judge? This man God sent as both ruler and redeemer by the hand of the angel who appeared to him in the bush. This man led them out, performing wonders and signs in Egypt and at the Red Sea and in the wilderness for forty years. This is the Moses who said to the Israelites, God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brothers. This is the one who was in the congregation in the wilderness with the angel who spoke to him at Mount Sinai and with our fathers. He received living oracles to give to us. Our fathers refused to obey him, but thrust him aside, and in their hearts they turned to Egypt saying to Aaron, Make for us gods who will go before us. As for this Moses who led us out from the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. And they, became, they made a calf in those days and offered a sacrifice to the idol and were rejoicing in the works of their hands. 
But God turned away and gave them over to, the, to worship the host of heaven. As it is written in the book of the prophets, Did you bring to me slain beasts and sacrifices during the forty years in the wilderness, O house of Israel? You took up the tent of Moloch and the star of your god, Raphon, the images that you made to worship, and I will send you into exile beyond Babylon. Our fathers had the tent of witness in the wilderness, just as he who spoke to Moses directed him to make it, according to the pattern that he had seen. Our fathers in turn brought it in with Joshua when they disposed the nations that God drove out before our fathers. So it was until the days of David, who found favor in the sight of God and asked to find a dwelling place for the God of Jacob. But it was Solomon who built a house for him. Yet the Most High does not dwell in houses made by hands. As the prophet says, Heaven is my throne, and the earth is my footstool. What kind of house will you build for me, says the Lord? Or what is the place of my rest? Did not my hand make all these things? You stiff-necked people, uncircumcised in heart and ears, you always resist the Holy Spirit. As your fathers did, so do you. Which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? And they killed those who announced beforehand the coming of the righteous one, whom you have now betrayed and murdered. You who received the law as delivered by angels and did not keep it. This is the word of the Lord. Well, that is a hard sermon to read. It's hard because it points a spotlight at some dark things. When Stephen was arrested, he was charged before the council of the Jewish leaders as a blasphemer who was speaking against God, who spoke against Moses, who spoke against the law, and who spoke against the temple. In answering these charges, Stephen plunges deeply into the history of the Old Testament. So deeply, in fact, that by the time we reach the end of his response, I think it's pretty easy to forget that this is intended to be an answer to those charges. And there are a lot of ways we can approach this sermon with no shortage of bunny trails that we could chase out in this text into the rest of Scripture for the next year, I think. This morning, what I really want to do is I want to focus on the points which Stephen makes to these Jewish leaders about God, about his work of salvation, about the dividing line of Jesus, and about whom we are judged. Stephen may have been the one who was formerly on trial here, but at the end of his sermon, the tables have completely flipped. Stephen not only answers the question of Caiaphas, the high priest, showing him that he was in fact not a blasphemer, but he also convicts the council and these men who were accusing him of opposing God and his Christ, Jesus of Nazareth. And he does it all by tracing out the history of our salvation, starting with Abraham. Now this is an important sermon, not only because Uh, Stephen helps us to understand how Jesus fulfills the hope of the Old Testament. But it's also important for the way that it exalts God as the sovereign Savior through Jesus Christ. It's also important because it empties us of hope in any other Savior. And it warns us against the sort of presumption that the Jewish leaders had who had rejected Jesus and really followed the pattern of their fathers. The conclusion of this sermon, the main idea, if you will, is similar to what we've already seen mentioned in texts like Luke 20 and in Psalm 2 about the righteousness of God's judgment against those who reject his son. So the main idea of this sermon, what I want to show you this morning is simply this, that as the foundation of our salvation, Jesus is the rock upon which every other hope breaks. Jesus is the rock upon which every other hope breaks. Now, Stephen was charged with speaking against God, Moses, the law, and the temple. And in his defense, he answers each one of these accusations by establishing three truths, which are going to be our our three points this morning. 
First, he shows that God is the sovereign Savior. God is the sovereign Savior. Second, he convicts Israel, and he convicts these leaders. He shows that Israel had a pattern of rejecting God's Redeemer. So Israel rejected God's Redeemer. And third, Stephen exposes that these men had a limited view of God's glory. They had a limited view of God's glory. Now it's important to see, as one commentator puts it, that the main purpose of Stephen's sermon was not to find a way to get him out of, of harm's way here. Instead, it was actually to unmask the obstinacy and the disobedience of Israel and their leaders. So these words fall really like a battering ram, and they're meant to be that way. They're meant to pound away at the thin veneer of assurance that we give ourselves when we base our hope on anything but the work of Christ. This was an important message for the men who first received it, and it's an important message for us because there is no other anchor who can preserve us, no other Savior who can rescue our souls. So let's look at these three truths that Stephen establishes, starting with the first one that he does, which is that God is a sovereign Savior. Now the worst charge, if you were to, to list them, they're all bad, but if you were to list these charges in terms of, their wor have, of the worst, I think we'd all agree that the one uh, he, that is the absolute worst is that Stephen had been charged with blaspheming God. So we see that this is the first one that he addresses. Blasphemy is when a person speaks evil of God, when they utter things against God or say things about God which contradict who he is. It can also describe a, a willful rejection of God or a refusal of God's redemptive work, as is what is described as the blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. The Jewish leaders had actually accused Jesus of blasphemy, if you remember back to the Gospels, because he claimed to have authority to forgive sins and because he said that he was the Son of God. Now, we see that Stephen is standing on trial before the same council, being accused of the same crime of what he was saying about his master, Jesus. But Stephen wasn't a blasphemer, and that's clear, we see, from the very beginning of this sermon. He begins, Brothers and fathers, hear me. The God of glory appeared to our father Abraham when he was in Mesopotamia before he lived in Haran. Now it's, it's significant to see that even as Stephen was being accused, he didn't distance himself from these men. They were his enemies, but he still respected them. He respected their, their, their authority, and he respected their office. He addresses them here not as enemies, uh, uh, but really as brothers, as fathers, inheritors of God's covenant promises and his law. Stephen's appealing to them to, to think through and to reason what they know. This title, the God of Glory, is actually unique because it appears only here and in Psalm 29, verse 3. It's a title which, according to John MacArthur, exalts God as the one who is orchestrating all redemptive history. This was a most appropriate way for Stephen to address God by, given that he had been accused of blasphemy. But it's also important because he's about, he's saying this as he was about to trace how God had been at work throughout history to make his salvation a reality for his people. Now, Stephen probably could have started all the way back with Adam, or maybe with Noah, but he chose to start tracing God's work with Abraham, mostly because this is where we really start to see the blessing of that promise of salvation starting to take shape in the promise of an offspring, and because this calling of Abraham is what really set Stephen and these, these men apart. They were all physically sons of Abraham, inheritors of this divine covenant, although we see by the end of this sermon, as John the Baptist preached, that it takes more than a bloodline to be a son of Abraham. As we look at what Stephen says about Abraham, it becomes pretty clear that his focus isn't so much on Abraham the man, but on God, and as he incorporated Abraham into his plan of redemption. 
From Abraham's call to his time sojourning in the land of Canaan to the promises he received, everything that Stephen says about him is focused really on God, who is the author or the the orchestrator of all of this. Stephen recounts to us how God appeared to Abraham while he was still living in Mesopotamia, how, how he called Abraham to leave the land of his kin, to go to a land that he would show him. When Abraham arrived in this land, God didn't immediately give it into his possession. Instead, he gave him a promise which hinged on a future promised offspring. God told Abraham that his descendants would be sojourners, that they would be wanderers in a land that belonged to others. In fact, he said that they would be enslaved in that land for 400 years but that at the appointed time, he would judge that nation that had enslaved them, that he would bring them out, and that he would bring them to this place to receive this land where they would worship him. Now, Abraham believed God. And his faith, the scriptures say, was accounted to him as righteousness. Stephen points out that Abraham himself never actually got to enjoy the land as his own. Although God promised it to him, he always lived there as a stranger. He moved from place to place, never setting down roots. He received a promise that it would be given as a possession to his offspring. And Stephen, as he says these things, he he meant for the council to understand that Abraham, their forefather, their namesake, cared more about the uh, cared about a greater blessing more than he cared about the actual place. Richard Longenecker observes that Stephen wanted these men to see that Abraham cherished as most important the covenantal and personal relationship that God had established with him wherever his place of residence was, a relationship of which circumcision was the God-given sign. So we're meant to understand that God gave Abraham actually something better than property, even as he promised this land to him and to his children. He established a relationship with Abraham and made Abraham a blessing to the whole world. This promise was never about the land. The promise was about God, who had called Abraham out of, the, out of darkness, out of service to false gods, to live in the light of the one true living God. The promise was about a blessing through an offspring who is going to be the source of blessing for all the families of the world. The promise was about salvation from sin, about an offspring who would be the promised snake crusher. The land was just the start of the blessings, not the whole blessing itself. And to communicate this, God didn't give the land to Abraham straight away. He had a purpose for showing his plan of redemption through the way that he was going to rescue Abraham's descendants. In verse 9, Stephen presses on to the days of Joseph. Now, Joseph, if you remember, was Jacob's favorite son, and his brothers absolutely hated him for it. Eventually, they managed to sell him into slavery, into Egypt. They told their father that wild animals had torn him apart. And Jacob nearly died when he heard the news of his lost son. But God was with Joseph, and he rescued Joseph out of all of his afflictions, which were many. Eventually, God made him the ruler of Egypt, second only to Pharaoh. Then, through Joseph, God actually rescued Jacob and all of Joseph's brothers and their families from a severe famine. What Joseph's brothers had meant for evil, God had meant for good. And through his sovereign hand, we see that God delivered his people from every single threat, setting the stage for exactly what he had promised to Abraham. In verse 17, Stephen says, But but as the time of the promise drew near, which God had granted to Abraham, the people increased and multiplied in Egypt until there arose over Egypt another king who did not know Joseph. He dealt truly with our race and forced our fathers to expose their infants so that they would not be kept alive. But even in the midst of this hardship, we see that the redemptive purpose of Almighty God could not be undone. He raised up Moses, and through Moses he brought the people of Israel, all the descendants of Abraham, out of Egypt. He judged Egypt. 
He raised Pharaoh up and he cut Pharaoh down so that the world would see and know the glory of the living God. One by one, God took on all the supposed gods of Egypt and he triumphed over them. And then he brought his people out and he made his covenant with them at Mount Sinai. And then eventually he brought them to the promised land and gave it to them. Now, even that's not the end of the story, but Stephen's confession here is clear. That God, the the God of glory, is a God who redeems. He is a God who rescues. He is a God who is the sovereign ruler over all things, who orchestrates the histories of mankind and the world for a purpose of displaying His glory as He rescues a people for Himself from sin to receive an inheritance, not so much in a place, but in God Himself. The history of the world. Our history is the history of God's almighty plan of salvation. This is His story. And through His grace, because of His great love, we get to be part of that. Stephen wasn't a blasphemer. As he stood before this council, we see he's he's confessing God's great covenantal work of salvation to them, exalting Him as the God of glory. Uh, Nothing about what Stephen says here was controversial. If the council itself hadn't been so opposed to Stephen, if they hadn't been so riled up, I imagine you would have heard a couple amens as he said all of this. But this is leading somewhere. It's leading, uh, it's leading to the point where the promise of redemption gets fulfilled. And before we press on to the rest of what Stephen has to say as he's taking us from all the way from Abraham to Jesus, I think we need to give due regard to the point that he's made for us. I think that sometimes people can really struggle with the Old Testament. I don't, I don't know about you. Do you, do you. Does your Bible reading suffer more when you're in the Old Testament than the New Testament? Sometimes you get the book of Numbers. I always said the book of Numbers is where Bible reading plans go to die. Because you make it there and then you just go, I can't make it through this list. Stephen, though, he helps to clarify some things for us. He shows us, really in short order, how the Old Testament has a point and a purpose, how it lays the groundwork for the salvation that Jesus brings to the world. He is that promised offspring that God spoke to Abraham about. He is the one who ushers us in to a land of promise that's better because it's a heavenly one that's been made new through the power of his sacrifice, which is greater because it is the land in which God dwells with his people. The foundation of our hope, the promise of the gospel, was not built in an ivory tower of ideals that are just meant to teach you how to live a better life. The gospel is built on this divine priority of the glory of God being worked out and hashed out in the salvation of his people. The story of redemption was forged in the messiness of life, written by a sovereign God as he worked to redeem men like Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and Joseph and Moses, and David, and on down the line, all culminating in Jesus Christ, who is the yes and amen of all of God's promises. Jesus' work on the cross wasn't arbitrary. It was God's sovereign plan, a plan which exalts him as the God of glory. It's like Stephen has given us a pair of glasses to put on as we read the Old Testament, which clarify to us of how to read it, to see the significance of every word as it points us to the glory of our Redeemer so that we'll be joined to Him by faith in the great love with which He has loved us in Jesus Christ. So we see first in Stephen's sermon how he exalts God as the sovereign Savior. He also brings us face to face with Israel's history of rejected redeemers. Now Stephen had not only been charged with blasphemy against God, he'd also been charged with blasphemy against Moses and the law. Now because Moses was the servant of the Lord, because he received the law from God, this this charge is tantamount to blasphemy against God. To reject God, to reject God's commands is to reject God himself. 
Now, Stephen actually spends more time here talking about Moses and the law than he does about Abraham or any of the other patriarchs. And there's a reason for that. Because it's in the midst of talking about Moses and Stephen, or Moses, really, that Stephen starts to shift uh, towards the charges that are going to fall on these men who are charging him as they accuse him of blasphemy. Now, as Stephen talks about Moses, we see that he actually shows a lot of respect for him. He starts in verse seven, he, he starts in verse 17 and goes all the way through verse 43. In verse 17, we see that Stephen um, tells us about how God saved Moses as the time of the promise that God had given to Abraham drew near. How he saved him from a king who had oppressed the nation of Israel, as God said would happen. Pharaoh uh, forcibly killed many baby boys and try and, and um, he was trying to put a stop to the growing number of the Israelites. Actually, Pharaoh was, was afraid that as Israel grew, that if, Israel, if, if Egypt were attacked by an outside force, maybe Israel would rise up with them. So he had to put an end to that. And that's why he, he gave this command to kill these baby boys and also put um, the nation to hard labor. But we see as, as the history uh, of the Jewish people works out, we see that Pharaoh's ruthless rule was not able to unhinge God's redemptive purposes. Instead, we see, illustrate, we see that illustrated in how God spared Moses' life through a most unusual set of circumstances. Stephen reminds us how, how when Moses was exposed, it was actually Pharaoh's own daughter who adopted him and brought him up as her own son. So Moses was instructed in all the wisdom of the Egyptians. And Stephen says he was mighty in words and deeds. But he never forgot his people. In verse 23, Stephen actually recounts how when Moses was 40 years old, it came into his heart to visit his brothers. He left the glory and the privilege of Pharaoh's house, and he, count, he was counted among his brothers. And we're told how seeing one of them being oppressed by an Egyptian, he actually avenged him and killed that man. Stephen explains that Moses supposed his brothers, his fellow Israelites, would understand that God was giving them salvation by his hand. But they did not. The next day, while trying to reconcile two Israelites who were fighting with each other, the man who was wronging his neighbor thrust Moses aside, saying, Who made you ruler and judge over us? Do you want to kill me the way you killed the Egyptian yesterday? Now, this man's statement could have hardly represented the whole opinion of the Israelite nation, but his rejection of Moses led to his exile in Midian. Moses saw that news of what he had done to the Egyptian had already spread this far. He ran. And we know from the book of Exodus that Pharaoh was actually after his life as he did this. So for 40 years, Moses lived in Midian. He made a life for himself there. He became the father of two sons. He, he shepherded the flocks of his father-in-law Jethro. While he was there in the wilderness of Mount Sinai, the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire and a bush. When Moses came near, God actually spoke to him, saying, I am the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham and of Isaac and of Jacob. So we're seeing the redemptive storyline still coming, right? To Moses. Moses says, we're told that Moses was afraid to look. He, he trembled as the Lord commanded him to take the sandals from off his feet because he was on holy ground, ground which was made holy by the presence of the Lord who was with him there. And as the Lord spoke to him, he sent Moses back, saying, I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt, and I have heard their groaning, and I have come down to deliver them. And now come, I will send you to Egypt. Now, everything Stephen said so far, none of this would have been news to these Jewish leaders who have him on trial. They knew about Moses. <clears throat> they knew how Moses had grown up. They knew about how Moses had been exiled. They knew how he had been called by God and sent back to Egypt. Stephen, Stephen has a point in bringing this up. We got a glimpse of this in what he was said about Joseph, actually. But it's becoming more clear about what he's saying now about Moses. Look at verse 35. This is really important. Stephen says, This Moses, whom they rejected, saying, Who made you ruler and a judge? This man God sent as both ruler and redeemer by the hand of the angel who appeared to him in the bush. This man led them out, performed wonders and signs in Egypt and at the Red Sea 
and in the wilderness for 40 years. Mo- Moses was a man who God used to redeem his people. And yet he was also a man who had been rejected by this same people, just as Joseph had been rejected by his brothers. You starting to see what Stephen's getting at by bringing this up? Israel had a history of rejecting redeemers, men whom God had sent to them in the past to work out his purpose of salvation, looking ultimately to an offspring who would redeem his people, not from famines, not from pharaohs, but from sin and from Satan. Stephen continues, this, this is the Moses who said to the Israelites, God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brothers. This is the one who was in the congregation in the wilderness with the angel who spoke to him at Mount Sinai with our fathers. He received living oracles to give to us. That's, that's the law. So you see Stephen is, is showing regard for the law of Moses and for Moses himself. But still, Stephen says, Our fathers refused to obey him, but thrust him aside. And in their hearts they returned to Egypt, that place of slavery, saying to Moses' brother Aaron, Make for us gods who will go before us. As for this Moses who led us out from Egypt, we don't know what's come of him. So let's go our own way. This, This really brings us to the crux of the issue, doesn't it? The charge that Stephen had blasphemed Moses or the law just doesn't hold water. Stephen has affirmed Moses in the role that God had called him to. He has highlighted before this council how God used Moses to redeem Israel from their slavery, how he used Moses as a go-between between himself and Israel to give him their, his law. And despite all this, Stephen says it was their fathers who were the ones who turned from Moses, and more importantly from God, to serve other gods in, 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 a, in return, in a sense, back to the slavery, back to Egypt who had thrust him aside for false gods and for the works of their hands. So you can see this pattern is developing. In verse 42, Stephen talks about how as a result of this rejection, God had turned away from them and actually given them over to worship the host of heaven. He quotes Amos 5, verses 25 through 27, where God says, Did you bring to me slain beasts and sacrifices during the 40 years in the wilderness, O house of Israel? You took up the tent of Moloch. And the star of your God, Raphan. The, the images that you made to worship. So I will send you out into exile beyond Babylon. The point is this. Even as these men on the council are accusing Stephen of blasphemy, and even as he has acquitted himself of these false charges through what he has said here, there's a pattern. A pattern in which Israel had rejected God's redeemers. Their fathers had a track record for forsaking God and forsaking his servants. And that pattern had now reached a climax when these men, these men who stood and accused Stephen, had actually rejected the very Redeemer which Joseph and which Moses had been but shadows of. They had rejected the one whom Moses had promised was coming, who he said God was going to raise up from their midst who would be like Moses, but better than Moses, because he is the Son of God. So it's at this point, I actually want to skip over to verse 51, because we need to see the the real hammer blow of what Stephen is getting at. He's drawing a parallel between the way that their fathers had rejected God's redeemers and his prophets, and ultimately how they had rejected God himself to serve gods of their own making. He's, He's connecting that to what these people had done with Jesus. Look at, look at the contrast here. You stiff-necked people, uncircumcised in heart and in ears, you always resist the Holy Spirit. As your fathers did, so do you. Which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? And they killed those who announced beforehand the coming of the righteous one, whom you have now betrayed and murdered. You who received the law as delivered by angels and did not keep it. Verse 51 is really where the tables turn, where the accuser falls to his own accusation. You who consider yourselves to be the defender of Moses are the sons of the men who rejected him. 
Worse than that, you have rejected the righteous one of whom he spoke, Jesus of Nazareth, the promised offspring of Abraham, the son of David, the king of kings, and the Lord of lords. The crime which prevented your fathers from entering the land of rest, the land of the promise given to Abraham, is peanuts next to what you have done, and yet you continue to reject him. Jesus is, sorry, Stephen's words here echo what Jesus himself had said in John 5, verse 39, when he said to these, these same leaders, You search the scriptures because you think in them you have eternal life, and it is they that bear witness about me. Yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. If you had believed Moses, you would have believed me, for he wrote of me. But if you do not believe his writings, how will you believe my words? In Luke 11, verses 47 through 51, Jesus charged these leaders saying, Woe to you, for you build the tombs of the prophets whom your fathers killed. So your witnesses, and you consent to the deeds of your fathers, for they killed them and you build their tombs. Like those tenants in Jesus' parable, these leaders had rejected God's prophets. But more than that, they had rejected God's own Son, the true Redeemer who brings us life through His own sacrifice. This this is the knife edge of Stephen's sermon, and boy, it cuts like a razor through the pretense and through the outward shows of righteousness that amount to nothing, and it just lets in the light. It exposes the death behind the curtain that lay over these men's hearts. But friends, that same knife edge must be allowed to cut to the core of our hearts as well. Because we are all so tempted to reject God's work of redemption, to settle on attempts that we have in our own making to try to make ourselves righteous before God, forgetting that it is only by Christ that we are saved. There is only one Redeemer. There is only one who has conquered. There is only one who joined himself to us in our weakness and overcame through his cross. Jesus is the rock of the foundation of our trust and he is the rock upon which every other hope breaks. The author of Hebrews warns us based on what happened to that, to that generation of Israelites who rejected Moses and the God who brought them out of Egypt, saying, so we see that they were unable to enter that rest because of unbelief. Therefore, while the promise of entering his rest still stands, let us fear lest any of you should seem to have failed to reach it. For good news came to us just as to them, but the message they heard did not benefit them because they were not united by faith with those who listened. For we who have believed enter that rest. As he has said, as I swore my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. There, there is something about our flesh that is just predisposed to this pattern. So Stephen speaks this indictment to these, this council that has him on trial. He, we should feel as if he's speaking it to us as well, because we are sinners as well. As sinners, none of us can think that we are out of the danger that these men who sat on this council, which had first condemned Jesus and which now condemned Stephen for the testimony he gave to them, Uh, There is only one who can make us righteous. Only one who can redeem our souls. Jesus Christ, the Son of God. His grace is great. His love is powerful. His blood makes us clean. Through Him we receive that promised rest, that rest that the Father so longed for, even as they entered the promised land. He's our only hope. So take care, lest there be in any of you an unbelieving heart. Because this offer of peace does not last forever. And if we reject him, we are committing the very crime, the very blasphemy of this counsel against the Son of God. Our only hope is in Christ alone. The third truth that Stephen brings us to see is the danger of a limited view of God's glory. We skipped to the end of Stephen's sermon. And we did that because we needed to see how he answered this charge that he was a blasphemer against Moses and Moses' law. There was a third charge against Stephen, and that was that he had spoken against the temple. 
this is important too because the temple was the place that God made his special presence dwell. The glory of this building was not in the decorations or the gold or the instruments that were used. The beauty of this place was in the presence of God's glory that dwelled there. That's what made the temple special. And I don't know what Stephen had said to make these people think he was against the temple. It's possible that they had a misunderstanding of what he had said regarding Jesus' death on the cross when he had said, destroy this temple and in three days I will, rise it, I will raise it up. Nevertheless, we see that Stephen does answer this charge of verses 44 through 50. And as he does, he shows that these men really had a limited view of the glory of God, which clouded their understanding of the significance of Jesus. You can say that this misunderstanding, this little view of God's glory, this limited view of God's glory, is part of what limited them in their response to Jesus. So this answer is connected to what we've been seeing about Jesus, being the fulfillment of what Moses and the prophets have spoken of, and the fulfillment of God's covenant promises. In verse 44, Stephen goes back to when Israel was in the wilderness, back to the tabernacle. Now the tabernacle was a tent, it moved with the people, and its purpose was to, to house the special presence of God as the nation made their way into Canaan. After Joshua led the people into the promised land, the tabernacle remained. It was the primary place of worship for the nation. It was like that even until the days of David, who, Stephen says, found favor in the sight of God and asked to find a dwelling place for the God of Jacob. Now, God did not allow David to build a temple. Actually, God told David he was going to build a house for him. And that actually leads up to the Davidic covenant. So you, you can see how this is just woven into that redemptive history that Stephen has been tracing out for us. God did permit David's son, Solomon, to build the temple. Though, as Stephen says, God permitted him to, as he permitted this to be built, he never limited his presence to it. In verse 48, Stephen says, Yet the Most High does not dwell in houses made by hands. As the prophet says, Heaven is my throne. And the earth is my footstool. What kind of house will you build for me, says the Lord? Or what is the place of my rest? Did not my hand make all these things? God, God is the Lord of all the earth. He is not dependent on us for anything. The temple was a special place, but the glory of the presence of God could not be contained fully by it. As Stephen says these things about the temple, he's making a point about the way these leaders had a limited view of the glory of God. They saw it as something that was attached to a physical place, a place which, in all honesty, had been built by a guy who did it for political motives. Herod was not a good guy. And the temple was never meant to be the permanent place of God's own dwelling. I, I think that Stephen had a real understanding of this which is why he confronted the Jewish leaders about this in particular. They talked a big game about their regard for Moses and their regard for the law and their regard for the temple, but they were in desperate need of salvation. The dwelling place of God is not in a building. It's in the hearts of his people through the presence of the Holy Spirit. Heaven is his throne and the earth is his footstool. We are so prone to overestimate the value of our own efforts in the sight of God. These leaders relied on their heritage, their bloodline, their outward showings of righteousness, even the physical glory of the temple. But what they lacked was the substance of true righteousness, which comes by grace through faith in Jesus Christ the righteous one, who says, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. The hope of God's people is not in a place, but in a person. And it is a hope that will not disappoint. Stephen's sermon, as far as I'm concerned, acquitted him of all the charges that were laid against him. But Stephen didn't speak this to try and win his way out of death. He spoke passionately and eloquently by the power of the Holy Spirit, showing that the hope of the Old Testament is more than the land. It's more than the temple. 
It's more than the law, but it's in a heavenly inheritance, in a heavenly land, in a redeemer who actually makes us into his dwelling place, his temple, who then writes his law on our hearts. This is an uncomfortable sermon, and it's going to end in an even more uncomfortable way as we look at Stephen's martyrdom next week. It was uncomfortable for the men who sat on this council, and it should be uncomfortable for us because it's the sort of sermon that presses us against the rock of Christ. So as we see this, we have two choices. We can either seek our refuge in this rock by faith, or we can be broken by it as these religious leaders were. So my appeal to you this morning is this. Seek your refuge in him. Let's pray. Lord God, we've seen this morning how you exalted Jesus through the words of your servant, Stephen. Father, it's a, it's a hard thing to read these words because it, it, points, it, it points a light, a spotlight into the darkness of our own hearts. Father, you by your spirit, you've convicted us of sin. We know we are sinners. We know that we do not deserve your favor. And yet, you have given Jesus, your beloved son, his death was not an accident. It was purposeful. He laid his life down and he took it up again so that we might no, no longer have fear of the grave. No more fear of judgment because the judgment fell on him and we have been raised with him, having been united to him by faith to an eternal life. Father, I pray even as we hear the warning from the author of Hebrews, to take care, to be watchful. I pray, Father, that we would be watchful over our own lives and our own hearts, that your Spirit would shine a light on those things in our life that still need to be crucified to the cross. And I pray, Father, that as we do, that the life of Christ would flourish in our hearts and the world would see and know that he is king. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, if you would, please stand for our song of response this morning, which is How Deep the Father's Love for Us. You can find that on page 100, or sorry, that's hymn number 106, 106.